Before we jump into today's episode, we want to talk to you about Internet Church. Rich, what is Internet Church? Oh, it's only the best internet gathering this side of the Kailua River. Is the Kailua River a thing? Maybe we should start over. <laughs> let's let's do it again. Ask me again. <laughs> no, let's leave it in. Now no, no, let's talk about Internet Church. Uh, internet Church. Actually, it's a thing we do every other Friday night where we all gather together, uh, encourage the saints in truth. It's uplifting. It's edifying. It's just a time to gather for about an hour on a Friday night or day, depending what part of the world you're in, just to be encouraged by the saints. You you think you would like something like that? Is the Pope Catholic? Uh, you bet your sweet bippy the Pope is Catholic. And uh, Justin, Internet Church is all about gospel freedom. It's good. I'm trying to think of the follow-up question. <laughs> oh, I'm like, man, this thing is lagging. Uh, all right. If No. Absolutely love it. So if you were going to... No. What are we going for? Are we trying to be funny or are we trying to be serious? I don't know. I I mean, whatever. I, we're trying to let people know that... Oh, <laughs> I'm not as gifted as you are in this department, my friend. So join us every other Friday night, 8 o'clock Central, 6 o'clock Pacific, 9 o'clock Eastern. If you are international and want to add that to your calendar so you don't have to do all the time conversions, head on over to lovereality.org slash circles and add the Internet Church Circle to your calendar. Welcome back to The Move. We're vibing through the book 10 minutes at a time. I'm your host, Justin Koo, and in today's episode, we're talking about that one time in the Bible where Jacob accidentally sleeps with his fiance's sister. If you're wondering what in the world we're talking about, we're looking at Genesis chapter 29, verses 1 through 30. I'm hanging out today with my, fan, my friend, Kessia Rain. Uh, Pastor Cassie, how are you doing today? Doing all right? Doing fantastic. What a blessed day. <laughs> this this is a fun story. Uh, this is one of those that I think I remember hearing growing up as a child. Um, and it's always been kind of a puzzling thing, um, other than just the details of the story, which are really, really weird. You know, uh, Jacob is looking for a wife. He finds a, a woman that he's like falling in love with. And then somehow the Bible describes that he has the wedding night. He ends up sleeping with this woman. And then in the morning afterwards, wakes up and's like, whoops, that wasn't the person that I had in mind. And it just, there's so many questions popping up. But I wanted to kind of start before we get to that kind of like climax of this story. Um, there are a handful of details that seem to be abnormal to me. Uh, for example, one thing that was mentioned in the text was that uh, this girl or this woman that he had noticed that the Bible describes her as a farmer. And I thought that, that was really interesting because when I think about the role of women in kind of biblical times, farmer wasn't one of the descriptions that immediately jumps to my mind. Are we looking here in chapter 29... Like when he's watering the sheep, like that part. Mm -hmm. at the, at, towards the towards the beginning, yeah. Yeah. So I think mine says shepherd. What did um, I say? Oh, I, I said farmer. No. <laughs> I said farmer, didn't I? I meant shepherd. That's what I meant. I yeah, have it written down in my notes wrong. Shepherd is is not one of the things that we think of of women doing, but they definitely did. And in fact, even you know, like we think of that the. Christmas night, you know, Jesus is born and comes to the shepherds. Huh. It, whenever you look at the nativity, it's always men right. that they portray. But actually, it was often like young kids. It was girls and women. And there were men there too, kind of scrappy. But it was, this was not like the polite, refined society. This isn't like 
tea time that's segregated by gender. They're mm. just sending people out there to care for the sheep. So yeah, it was not abnormal as far as I understand for for a woman like uh, like Rachel to be out there as a shepherd. Interesting. Okay. So that, I mean, I don't know how important that detail is, but it certainly changes a little bit. Like we see this woman as someone who's working hard, who's contributing to the family bottom line, so to speak. Uh, and I thought there was an interesting description of Leia. Leia is someone as, at least in the NIV, was described as having weak eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we kind of wonder what that is. And scholars debate, does that mean that she maybe had like a vision impairment or does it mean like like one of her eyes wasn't working well or it was maybe off center or something like that? Or it was just like a, a cosmetic feature? There was something different about her eyes. So we're not really sure what that means exactly. What okay, do you so think? It, it's not an idiom for her being hard on your eyes in contrast to <laughs> Rachel being, because it says Rachel afterwards is very attractive. So I was yes. wondering if like maybe I'm missing something and the Bible's just being polite here. But it's like literally there's a maybe some kind of physical issue with her eyeballs. Yes, I think there might be some physical issue with her eyeballs. And it could have shown up in a way that was cosmetic and visible. Okay. You know, it could have been like she had one eye that was weak and one eye that was strong or something like that or some sort of disfigurement or something like that. But we're not really sure. But the Bible does not go out of its way to say that she was great looking. So we can pretty much assume she lived in her sister's beautiful shadow. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So one of the details that shows, and I guess this is kind of like the whole idea of relationships and how they're starting this relationship. I thought it was interesting because it's very different than the, uh, the I kissed dating goodbye narrative that I was <laughs> raised with, uh, and you know, many times you know, growing up and it talks about how basically he ends up kissing her right away. And then she starts to cry, which I thought was really interesting. And I'm, so I'm wondering what's happening behind the scenes here. It felt it, to me, it felt very forward. It felt very rushed. Um, and then just the response was uh, maybe dramatic. I don't know. Yes. It, well, it was probably Jacob weeping aloud. Hmm. It was probably him crying after he kissed her. But then also notice a few verses later, her dad, Laban, finds Jacob, runs to him, which running is like not a thing you typically would do if you're trying to be dignified, hmm. um, and then hugs him and kisses him. So there, there's a lot of emotion actually all in here. And it, it probably is related to um, f- finding the people you were looking for. Find Like he, he went on this long journey that, I mean, out in the wilderness, he's left his family and now he's been reunited with his tribe, basically. He's never met these people, but these are like safe, welcoming family people. You know what I mean? Okay, so it's not that he's overjoyed at the fact of finding a beautiful woman per se. It's that now he's safe, and yeah, and he's on the run for for however long. I, I don't know how long since he's he's left home, so to speak. But he's been on the run for quite some time now. Yeah, he has been for quite some time, and I do think he was struck with her beauty. It, it doesn't say uh, this is why he hurried to move the stone for the, from the well and water the flock and all that. But you kind of get the idea that like, as soon as Rachel shows up, he gets real motivated. (laughs) It's like the, the kid in the youth group who's carrying two or three chairs all at once. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Like, Hey guys, can we get those chairs over here? And he's like, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. He's like, I'm going to impress her by moving these giant stones. That's exactly right. Like, Oh, I got, I got it. I'll water your flock, no problem. Which again is kind of a play on what Rebecca did with um, the servant of Abraham 
when before she married Isaac, mm. right? This the watering of the livestock and the hospitality and the and huh. how happy to find you know the tribe. They're in these two separate places, but because they're related, there's definitely a, a happiness to find his people. Which is interesting because, you know, earlier in however many episodes ago, we were talking about Sodom's kind of judgment and it was the lack of hospitality. It's the the way that they were treating kind of the strangers or foreigners that they would come across. And yet now twice we are seeing how one way for at least a young woman to distinguish herself from the crowd uh, is through the level of hospitality that she extends to someone maybe she's even met for the first time. Yeah. And hospitality when you're talking about a foreigner or a stranger, especially a traveler, it's actually talking about extending hospitality to people who are vulnerable. Hmm. And we may not get that because we travel in real cush circumstances. Right. You know, like we have our road trip snacks. You know, I got my, I don't know, what are my road trip snacks? Uh, carrots and I can't think of what else. I, I like have gold, goldfish crackers. Goldfish crackers. Yeah, yeah. You need something with a little crunch, keep you awake on the open road. So anyway, we're traveling and it's safe, you know, like you, if you come into like even a sketchy gas station, you're like texting your location to someone. But imagine you're out in the wilderness. There are literally wild animals that want to eat you for lunch. And there are bandits and robbers who wait because you're in a vulnerable position. Um, You're hungry. You don't know how far it is until the next quick trip, you know. Like, when's the next uh, Shell gas station going to come and renew my Sunflower Seed subscription? So to extend hospitality to the traveler, um, I think it speaks to our day, especially about extending hospitality to people who are vulnerable. Hmm. So, but yes, definitely that hospitality was very important. It was considered kind of a moral obligation to help out people who were coming through your way. Interesting. Okay, so... Uh, one, one thing I notice in this passage is how like immediately you get welcomed into kind of like the family unit. It's kind of like a done deal. Oh, we're related. Come hang out, like come stay with us, come live with us so much to the extent that like, Hey, you're already working here. You're contributing to the family business as it were. Um, how different that is to American culture, like being, being married to my wife, Emily, and you know, there's, there's a cultural difference and, uh, there's a shared values, obviously, and that family is important. You want to respect your elders, but the way that that's carried out is very different from, uh, the culture in which I was raised where right now, literally in this home that I'm at, there are 12 people living here, um, all of the siblings, all the grandkids, and it's a very kind of normal thing. It's an honorable thing, uh, to be able to take care of your family kind of in this expression. Whereas maybe in the way that my wife was raised, that's not so much the case. And so I just thought it was so interesting how, how quickly he's adopted into the family. And even like beyond that, it's not that, oh, you're just helping us because we're taking care of you. But now it's like, hey, let's take it a step further. Like you should get paid for the services that you render. Yes. You know what is so interesting to me? I This is what maybe struck me about this whole Leah and Rachel story with Jacob here. So in preparation for this, I listened to as much of the story of Jacob as I could, just kind of in one go to kind of hear in context. And I was reminded about how often it is that Jacob, you know, you've talked about, you know, the meaning of his name, I'm sure. And, you know, he's, he's someone who's always grabbing ahead to get something Mm. for himself. And throughout his story, there's so much bartering and negotiating 
and trying to get one up on somebody. And then he's getting one upped. And, Uh you know, it's all this back and forth. And um, it kind of made me think about how with, with Jacob, you know, that saying where Jesus is like, he's trying to control the, the temper of his disciples. And we kind of have this saying about, you know, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Hmm. Yeah. And I think about Jacob as like, man, you live by grasping. That's also like, that's how you're going to go through life. You're going to be grasping, grasping, grasping. And you see also how people are grasping after him. So Hmm. how Laban continually is taking advantage of Jacob, just as Jacob has been trying to use deceit and his own plans to, in, in order to get ahead. And in contrast to all of that, I believe stands God's covenant blessing, Hmm. which is not at all about negotiating or borrowing, not at all about, um, you know, trying to breed your flocks in order to outsmart your relative, you know, God's covenant blessing that isn't about, okay, I'll pay you for this. So we see in, in a story where Leah at one point is like, goes to Jacob after they're married. And he's like, she says, I get to sleep with you tonight because I hired you. I paid for this night with my son's mandrakes, which Mm. I don't know what a mandrake is, but must be delish because (laughs) Rachel was like, sure, you can sleep with him tonight if you give me some of these mandrakes. But anyway, it's just like how there's so much of the dysfunction in and around Jacob's story is about trying to grasp and strive and make it on my own terms. And in contrast to that is this covenant blessing that God has in store that's like, you don't, you don't have to create this thing. You don't have to make it happen. Like, I mm. promise I'm gonna bless you. So why don't you just relax? So is is this one of the themes that we should be taking up uh, taking away from this story? Because it didn't feel like he was grasping in this moment, but what you're saying is that that's kind of the trajectory of his life and maybe just the reputation gets around, or is it just one of these unfortunate things that he happens to be taken advantage of in this, in this moment. Yeah. I think it's one of the, I do think it is one of the themes of his life. And we see in his relationship with Laban, how Laban takes advantage of Jacob, the way that you can kind of imagine Jacob, especially young Jacob, before he really has this encounter with the Lord, how Jacob would have done to others. You know, Mm. you see the same kind of resonance with how Jacob was withholding stew from his brother Edom. Like, no, 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 but sell me your birthright. I'm like, I'm going to die. Like, just give me some food. Like, okay, but swear to me. Like, okay. And then he deceives his father. And anyway, there's all this deceit. And then you see how Laban is taking advantage of the one who's taking advantage. And I don't know that it's, I don't want to call it punishment. I don't want to call it karma. I don't think it was like word got around. And so Laban was trying to give him just desserts, but it definitely, there's an irony in this story. Mm. Yeah. Okay. That that makes sense. It's maybe not so much cause and effect, but there's it's something that we can notice about the story of of Jacob that it seems to happen in this way. So when we get to the idea of like you're working seven years for a wife, I think that that's already in and of itself very different than <laughs> I mean different than what I was remembering when I, I when Emily and I's story kind of played out. We we dated for not even seven months before I proposed, kind of a thing, and so. After one month of being at home with this family, he's like, okay, I want to marry her. I just think it's interesting that they would barter for seven years. Um, what's the what's the reason behind why they would approach kind of marital contracts in this way? Meaning we want some money out of it. 
Like or that just, way? Yeah. Like you got to work for seven years in order to marry my daughter. I just thought that that was interesting. It seems like a steep price, does it not? And in yeah. fact, the Bible, I think the Bible is giving the idea that it was long, but to Jacob, it seems like just a few days. Yeah. It's because like, Oh, this is so worth it. And I get to live in the same house as her. Score. <laughs> exactly. And <laughs> even the, the second period of seven years seems to be like spoken of in half of a sentence. It's like, oh yeah. And then he married the second one. And then now, you know, the seven years have passed, which was one of the questions I had was, did, did uh, at the end of seven years, it, it almost seems like he gets married to both women at the same time and not yeah. a seven year gap in between each each woman. Yeah, I think he marries Leah first and then mm-hmm. Laban says, let her finish her bridal week. So I don't know if that was literally seven days, um, but then I'll give you the other one and then you can serve seven more years. So I think Leah and Rachel became wives of Jacob like in the same month. Huh. And it did not go well because literally years later, they're like bitterly arguing. So this was a disaster. I don't know. Here's a, I mean, I have this question in my mind, which is after Jacob gets tricked and he finds that he's married Leah, would the right choice have been to be like, well, this is my wife now. Right. And like give up Rachel and not try to be like, have this two, these two wives. Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic question. It's so weird. This is such a, like a weird behind the scenes things. I'm working on a project right now uh, for another contract where I'm doing like a series of uh, podcasts or films on like things that Adventists believe. And one of the questions I'm asking is like, how do we understand the role of Ellen White uh, as people who claim to believe just what the Bible teaches? And yet we also have kind of this companion kind of, I don't know, influence in our community. And I don't know how I stumbled down this rabbit hole, but I ended up uh, trying to understand how the church approaches polygamy in like other parts of the world where where polygamy is kind of the standard practice in certain parts of the world. And then these individuals profess faith in Christ and want to get baptized and want to join the church. Like there's a huge, apparently historically, the massive debate on, well, what's the right thing to do here? Like you want to get baptized, but you have three wives. So yeah. Do we make you like cut them out and like live on their own without your support? Or do we like say too bad that you did that, but you can keep them? Right. Cause, cause the tension is in these parts of the world to, to get the wife number two, three, four, whatever the number is to divorce that is immensely shameful and ostracizing. It could literally mean like the death of this individual and, and her children kind of an idea. And so to, to force that would seem to be a huge uh, moral failure kind of a thing. And so it seems like the church has wrestled with this and, and all that to say, um, I don't know what the right thing is, is to do in this one. Uh, when, when he realizes, Oh, it's Leia and it's not Rachel. Like, what should you do? And I wish, I wish stories like this came with kind of like the companion, uh, leaders guide. We're like, okay, so here's what's happening. And here's all the right answers. But a lot of these stories don't seem to have right answers what's the point? Yeah. Why is this story here other than to show that maybe Jacob's the way that he handles or he interacts with other people seems to kind of come around to bite him in the, in the butt. But <laughs> beyond that, I, I don't know what else, like what, what's the, what's the value of the story here other than just to make our lives a little bit more complex. Cause in the research for the whole polygamy thing, like stories like this one are cited where it's like, well, clearly something happened here. There's multiple wives. We can't say, 
that uh, there's no precedent for this idea, even if we're we're going to double down on the uh, on the belief that God's ideal is monogamy. Um, yeah, like it's these stories are still in the Bible. Yes. Well, I want to say two things about these stories that I think are useful for us to keep in mind whenever we're reading scripture, and especially when we're reading narratives. And this is one I have said I don't know three four times already on the move. So bear with me, but because we see something described or depicted honestly in scripture is not necessarily an endorsement. So we see how the people that we want to kind of peg as God's heroes or like that's God's guy, that's God's woman right there, that that definitely is not preventing them from acting in ways that God does not like or approve of. Hmm. So, so I'm hesitant to cite biblical examples of something as like, well, you know, polygamy is biblical. (laughs) Like, yep. So is pretending she's your sister. So not sure we want to do that. Um, anyway, so I think just when we're reading the Bible in general, let's not take narrative descriptions Mm -hmm. as endorsements. And that is actually a commendation to scripture. This is not, not, um, cleaning up the stories. The Bible actually is interested in depicting honest, authentic historical accounts of people that include the complicated parts of their history. And then the second thing to say about this narrative, and that I think is helpful for the Bible in general, is the narratives of the Bible are frequently intentionally ambiguous. I believe that God has written this book in a way that keeps us pondering and asking questions. And this is in contrast to the way a lot of us want to approach the Bible. We want the Bible and we want it to be an answer book. And sometimes Mm -hmm. people have talked to us about the Bible as if the whole point is it's, you know, what is it? Something, something instructions before leaving earth, like. Oh, basic instructions before leaving earth. The Bible, B-I-B-L-E. B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth or like God's instruction manual or God's, uh, you know, anyway, whatever metaphor we use, they are, they are useful to a certain extent, Hmm. but the Bible is so complex and filled with genres that uh, are different from one another and filled with a divine purpose and a kind of complex divine human authorship that it can't be caps encapsulated by an acronym. So that's what I want to say about this story is actually, I think it leaves us with questions Hmm. and that that's intentional. And we see that often in narratives where we ask, well, does that mean this or does it mean that? And it leads us again to the Bible as meditative literature that we come to again and again, we return to, God can speak to us through that and deepen our understanding of life and himself. And it leads us to asking questions. If the Bible were only literally a bullet point list of do's and don'ts, it would not be a better book. It would be a worse book. Yeah. It probably wouldn't make the, uh, most sold, you know, list of all time, you know, um, I, which is helpful. I I appreciate that point because our lives are often so untidy in this same way, right? Where we go through an experience and we think, well, why in the world did God allow that to happen to me? And, 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 or, or maybe where was God in the middle of fill in the blank story? And I leave this passage asking myself that same question. It's like, okay, so there's a thing that happened. It's interesting. It moves the plot forward in the sense that Jacob needs to have a lineage. And so this is just the story of how he ends up finding a wife or two and eventually having children. But one of the questions is, well, where was God in this 
moment. Because uh, one of the things that we're talking a lot about this season is how, yes, these characters that we're talking about, they are in the foreground as far as what's in focus, and yet they're not the main characters of this book. That God is the hero of the story, not Abraham, not Jacob, not Leah, not Rachel. And I was thinking, well, where is he? He seems to be somewhat invisible in this story. Yeah, I think that's a great a great point. And a lot of the narrative around it will probably give us some clues and hints. But but God is not so on the nose, maybe, as we would like him to be narratively, like in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and as the story unfolds, we'll see at least what God does with uh, imperfect Jacob, Rachel, and Leah, and builds a nation around them, and how God listens to and intervenes and eventually changes hearts and lives. Hmm. Well, I'm very excited to see how this story continues to unfold. Stay tuned, everyone. Stay tuned. I want to shout out today on The Move, an album that I love so much. So Justin's giving me the opportunity to talk about an album by David Beloche called Labyrinth. And actually, it was Jonathan Leonardo who put me on this. He was like, check this out. I think you'll love it. He knows me. He was 100% right. I do love this album. And let me tell you the two things I like about it. So this is a podcast all about scripture, right? Like we're diving into the book 10 minutes Mm -hmm. at a time or so. And (laughs) this album is um, also scriptural. So all the words to the songs on this album, Labyrinth, are are drawn straight from scripture. And then they're arranged musically and repeated. And so I find this to be just a really beautiful Christian artistic effort at getting our minds to dwell on and meditate on God's word. So I love it for like real chill times. It's real chill. It could be background music, but I love it for for walks or I'm a big fan of the bath. So if you're a big fan of the bath, put this on in your next hot soak. I think you'll be blessed by David Belosh's Labyrinth. That's my shout out for this week. I love that. Have you ever gotten one of those like waterproof speakers? No, no, I have not. Oh, they are they are the best. I, I got a speaker a while back. Actually, I think I learned about this from Christian, who's uh, Christian Apariso, who's part of kind of the extended love reality kind of network. Um, he had a waterproof speaker. I think it was called a Wonder Wonder Boom, something like that. It was like fifty to seventy five dollars. It was like a very reasonable amount, but it's fully waterproof. And that's actually how I got into the practice of listening to books of the Bible or music and turning kind of my shower slash bath time into this kind of meditative experience that you were just describing. And I don't know, those speakers are powerful enough that they fill the entire room. And it's just one of those beautiful meeting places for God. And so I don't know, maybe next time I take a bath with the Wonder Boom, I'll, I'll check it out and listen to the labyrinth. Do that. I love it. Two shout outs combining into one. Okay. Well, you find Labyrinth, I'll find a, a waterproof speaker and we're going to be set. There you go. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> 